Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by the all-new BMW 3 Series. Don't be driven by technology. Drive it. The all-new BMW 3 Series is available with the latest BMW innovations, but what you'll love about this vehicle can't be listed or explained in words. It has to be felt on the road. In the same way that you have to see Avengers Endgame in theaters to really feel how deep and exciting it is. So hurry into your local BMW Center today and test drive the all-new BMW 3 Series for yourself. The all-new BMW 3 Series. Don't be driven by technology. Drive it. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation about the endgame. We've been subject to the great snapshot, and we have returned from oblivion. I am joined by my time-traveling, quantum realm-conquering, infinity gem-hoarding pal, colleague, co-host of Binge Mode, Mother of Dragons, Marvel Cinematic Universe fan, and Ringer Executive Editor, Mallory Rubin. Hello, Mal. Big Picture, assemble! (laughs) Mal, I'm so glad you're here. I've been talking about Marvel movies For the past month and also seemingly for years, Mm -hmm. 11 years, in fact, if we go all the way back to Marvel, when they first started with Iron Man and we're at a conclusion point. We're here, of course, to talk about Avengers Endgame, which is the I I think it's the movie event of the year. Does that seem fair to say to you? What about Detective Pikachu? I saw that, too. And man, I'm going to talk about that a little (laughs) bit in this podcast because it's it's changed my feelings somewhat on some of this stuff. But, you know, I think Endgame is an interesting uh, moment in the history of movies in a lot of ways because... If you have been following movies closely in this 10 or 11 years since they started this series, it has reshaped the way that we experience going to the movies. So you and I saw this movie at Disney in Burbank on a Tuesday morning. What a treat. It was a very exciting time. And I think we had a genuine and sincere excitement anticipation. Oh, absolutely. Would you say that the movie lived up to that anticipation? Actually, you know what? Let me say this. We're going to spoil the shit out of this movie. So if you don't want this movie ruined for you and you just want to hear Mal's general takes on the movie, Mm -hmm. we'll do those in the first five minutes. And then from there, I will be telling everybody what happens here and we'll be analyzing why it happened. So let's go back. Okay. Did you enjoy the movie? I did enjoy the movie. Okay, that's great. I'm so glad you're here with me doing this podcast then. (laughs) I did. That's probably the most I can say without actually spoiling anything. I'm not sure I can get five minutes of spoiler-free assessing out there, but... I will say that in general, a struggle that I have as a a consumer and as an earnest consumer of pop culture that I love is that I can sometimes set the bar really high for myself and then experience a little bit of a letdown, not because the thing isn't good, but because my hype and anticipation so outpaced anything that was possible. And an experience that I often have is that when I return to something for the second viewing, I enjoy it more than I did the first time around. I suspect that will happen for me with Endgame. All that said, I had a lot of fun. I certainly had some questions. I definitely didn't drink enough coffee before (laughs) seeing a three-hour movie at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday. Uh, But I really liked it. I don't think it was as good of a movie as Infinity War, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. But as a culmination of an era and a movie that simultaneously needed to work on its own for quite a long span of time and engage you and sustain its singular mission and also knit together a decade plus of cinema and storytelling, I thought it was not only really effective, but pretty pretty emotionally resonant as, you know, in essence, a, a love letter to these particular characters in this particular moment in Marvel. A lot of the conversation around the movie thus far from people who have seen it has said, 
that this movie is ultimately satisfying. Mm-hmm. That people are looking to be satisfied, which is not really a word that I have seen used in the context of any Marvel movie in the past. And the reason for that is very clear. Every other Marvel movie that happened before this was leading to something, was building to something. Right. And we've never had a movie experience like that before. We've never had, now you obviously have been doggedly covering Game of Thrones and Harry Potter as well. And those were long tail stories. Those mm-hmm. were stories that were told over a long period of time. I think of Harry Potter as a little bit different because the books existed right. before the movies came. And Game of Thrones, of course, we are still waiting to find out what is ultimately <laughs> going to happen. But that's yes. a TV show. And even though it often feels like you're watching a movie, you don't go to the movie theater to watch it. This movie, the idea of satisfying is so key because it really does end something. And this is kind of where we're going to start spoiling things. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I will say right at the top, there's no post-credit sequence in this movie. Right. And that is a fascinating choice to me. We'll talk about it a little bit more going forward. In general, you mentioned that this is um, quite a long film, that there's a lot of time invested, (laughs) three hours and two minutes, I can recall fondly when some of our colleagues saw the runtime of this movie uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was announced and they were not pleased. Yeah. Uh, I, I I actually quite dug the three hour mm-hmm. runtime and didn't really feel the lag. Did you, did you feel comfortable sitting for that long a period of time? Yeah. Again, other than the uh, starvation and uh, caffeine deprivation, which I think is more just about how I personally manage my own day <laughs> yep, in life. Yep. Uh, I thought it flowed well. I thought it had a, a relatively brisk pace for the sheer amount of time that it was covering. And because of the pace at which certain characters enter the film or exit the film, it felt less like a series of vignettes than Infinity War, but it still ultimately felt like many, many movies, much like the first three phases of the MCU in general, that were stitched together to give you the totality of the thing. And, you know, the final act, the final battle, and the uh, very emotionally stirring (laughs) pieces of fallout from that, that could have been its own movie and sort of felt like it, but everything that led up to it, it worked pretty well and sustained itself ultimately. I wasn't at any point like, oh my God, when are we going to get to X? Which I think is interesting because of how long it actually took for certain key figures to return. Way, way, way longer than I think we anticipated when we went into the movie. Yeah, I think I put my bet in an hour and 15 minutes before we get sort of the undoing of mm-hmm. the the snapture and... It's more like two hours and 10 minutes. Yeah. So that that raises an interesting question, which is, do you want to spend two hours and 10 minutes with what I would say is not necessarily the B team, because, of course, the people who survived include Tony Stark, who we sort of open the film on and we see his survival on our spaceship with Nebula and also Captain America, who are mm-hmm. key core members of the team. And, and then there is Black Widow and Hawkeye, who are yeah. our core <laughs> Avengers, um, but maybe not our favorite Avengers. And then there is the aforementioned Nebula, and then there is a War Machine, uh-huh. and then Ant-Man yep. returns, which is nice. And then we discover a extremely fat Thor. <laughs> I loved which it. Which is just I loved fat fantastic. Thor. <laughs> um, but in general, yeah. I, I think that this, this was not what I have come to love about Marvel, which is interesting because a lot of these characters are, are sort of getting a send-off mm-hmm. in this movie, those people that we open with. And we knew that. We knew that at the end of Infinity War, that they they okey-doked us. You know, right. they, they vanished Black Panther and Spider-Man and these figures that we knew were going to be important going forward. And they kept the people we've been seeing for 10 or 11 mm-hmm. years, which I thought was clever. Mm-hmm. But then I spent the next year of my life being like, man, when are we just going to get rid of Iron Man and go to the next thing? Right. Uh, How did you feel just spending all that time with these figures that we've already spent a lot of time with? So I think that there are two clusters, maybe even more than that, but 
ultimately two clusters within the group of people that we spend the bulk of the film with. The OGs, you know, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, the people that we're really invested in and that ultimately in many ways the movie is about saying goodbye to or saying goodbye to a certain version of because, you know, fat Thor going off with the Guardians is very different than can Thor sustain his own series of movies throughout this entire enterprise. Uh, we're, we're in spoiler territory we're now. truly so. spoiling. Bobby, very sorry. Iron Man dies. <laughs> <laughs> he truly dies. And Captain America does not, which is really surprising. But obviously Captain America ages and changes and gives over his shield to Sam. Uh, and I thought getting to really, really luxuriate in spending a couple hours with those people, particularly with Tony Stark. Like, in many ways, it's a Tony Stark send-off movie. Um, felt really appropriate and more potent than I was expecting. And I'm a person who, like, cries a lot <laughs> watching movies and TV shows and reading books. The other group of people, that second cluster, it's basically just characters we don't care about as much. Yeah, I, I As think- either the originals or the people we're about to embrace and spend this whole new span of time with. Yeah, I don't really have a problem with, say, Rocket Raccoon, right? Rocket Raccoon is a great addition to the franchise. Uh, Wonderful. It's Bradley Cooper, the effort that Bradley Cooper puts into (laughs) creating this um, machine gun-toting maniacal raccoon, which is a real (laughs) thing that is happening in movies (laughs) in 2019, uh, is is actually quite admirable and fun and weird. Uh, It's just when you remove him from the Guardians Uh and you place him alongside Captain Marvel and War Machine, it, it it isn't just ragtag. It's just sort of like I don't. I just don't want to be with these people. Right. Like Thor is not yet with the team at that point of the movie, and you're sort of like, can we at least get Thor back? Like, what is yeah. going on here? And there's a long a long period of the film is spent sort of determining the plan mm-hmm. to save the rest of the figures. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is a, this is maybe an opportunity to talk about. I think the key complication and also one of the most clever aspects of the movie, which is. Time travel is right at the heart of this story. Yes. <laughs> and time travel is a really hard thing to do in movies. And uh-huh. it is the all-time nitpicky storytelling device. Uh-huh. And I think it was really fun to see the movie with you because I know that you love these movies, but I know the first question you had for me was sort of like, I'm not sure if the magic checks out. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, obviously you are a fantasy enthusiast and mm-hmm. expert. And so let's try to explain. Can you explain at all how any of the time travel in this movie works? So... You know, I pride myself on being able to answer a question like that, just in general, <laughs> right? You are a logician. Yes. One of the things that I think about a lot when I'm reading a fantasy story or any story where something other than the rules of our actual universe exist, do the rules of that universe make sense? And I think it's hard to fully invest in a story and to buy in not only to what you're watching as it's happening, but to where it ultimately leads you. If the answer to that is no, that the rules of the universe don't make sense. Now, I, sh- I want to own freely that I don't have the canonical expertise about how the quantum realm and time travel works in the Marvel universe. And I'm sure that, or I suspect that what they do in the film on the time travel front aligns with established canon from the comics. I would think it had to. Because it is such a deliberate effort to say everything you think you understand about time travel from other movies and other stories is wrong. It would have been very easy to just do, whether or not you think it makes sense, a traditional time travel story. But they went out of their way to say, no, 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 no. Back to the Future fucking lied to you 
right? <laughs> there are overt references to other movies. We, are, we know now for sure that in the MCU, Back to the Future and Time After Time and Bill and mm-hmm. Ted's Excellent Adventure exist. Yes, Hot Tub Time Machine. Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> That's a call out. Yes, and, and that is one of the charms, I think, of the MCU is that these are sort of like clever, quippy movies that make you feel like you're with your friends who happen to have superpowers. Right. But inevitably, when you are so self-referential as to subvert your own story logic, mm-hmm. I think it leaves us a little bit uneasy. Let's let's step back for one second. Yeah. So obviously, at the end of Ant-Man and the Wasp, for those of you who are watching every single Marvel movie, Scott Lang, a.k.a. Ant-Man, goes into the quantum realm, I think on the roof of a building in a van, and that is being controlled by Michael Douglas's character, Hank Pym, and Evangeline Lilly, who is the Wasp. And then, while he's in the quantum realm, the snapture happens. Michael Douglas disappears. Evangeline Lilly disappears. Michelle Pfeiffer disappears. Everybody in Ant-Man's universe is gone, uh-huh. and Scott is stuck in the quantum realm. Uh-huh. We see what happens at the top of the movie. We see Hawkeye's family disappear. We realize that... Very gutting. Very gutting. It's, it's, it's actually very well told. I think the yeah. first five minutes of the movie are really well done. There's a great needle drop, this traffic song that I wrote about on the, on the site. Um, and then we go five years into the future. And five years into the future, a rat crawls across, <laughs> I guess, the, the somewhere in the van? Yeah. And triggers... Yes. The quantum realm machine. Yes. And it sends Scott... Yes. Back to our universe. Correct. And so what we have is... The makings of a time travel machine. Mm-hmm. Scott figures out quickly what happens. He he reengages with his daughter five years later. Mm-hmm. Also a very touching moment. Yeah. The, the movie is pretty good, I would say, at, at balancing that high, high, high drama, even though it's ridiculous circumstances, and the comedy. And I think that's kind of the hallmark of the most successful of these movies. Would you mm-hmm. agree with that? I would, though I think that that's actually part of where I had questions about the way they executed the time travel. Because I said this to you after we left the, the screening. Like, I thought one of the... Uh, moments of inevitable tension in the movie was going to be Tony Stark having to choose between bringing back the vanished and protecting the present day timeline that had come to exist in which he has a daughter now. That's right. But that didn't happen because the nature of time travel in the movie hinges on the understanding that what you do when you go back into the past cannot change your future self because that future self let me take a deep hit of my bong here. <laughs> Is a version of your past. Yes. Once you go. There's a moment when um, Iron Man, I believe, and, and maybe Bruce Banner slash the Hulk are explaining how this actually works. And they're clearly explaining it, not just for someone like Hawkeye who doesn't understand science, but also for the audience. (laughs) And it was easily the most confusing part of the movie. And this is a movie that features like a Pegasus and a walking tree and like (laughs) just a series of things that don't make any sense. And that is by far the most confusing aspect of it. And in some ways, it's very easy to just kind of check your brain at the door with that stuff and say like, whatever, they figured out time travel. But what looks like a portal to the quantum realm somehow just becomes a time machine portal and those are not the same thing and we never really understand how they did that. Yeah, they call it time heist. Right. Which is (laughs) that's clever. Hysterical. I enjoyed that. (laughs) But also a little nod I think to okay, we're we're sort of just hoping that you're going to accept this and there's just a little bit of a dissonance there because they do actually work really hard to establish what the rules are. It's just not there's almost just too much else going on to allow yourself as a viewer the moment of time that you need to process that and think about it. And I think it would be okay, and it is ultimate, It is ultimately fine, because enough else is happening in the movie that you're focusing on instead that you sort of accept the, you know, deus ex time heist aspect of it. But 
it really matters, not only in bringing the people back, but then in, you know, the Steve Rogers arc, which I, I have like 50 questions about. It's confusing. Let's, let's wait to unpack too much of Iron Man and, and Captain America's kind of closing chapter, which I think is really profoundly important to the story, but also slightly confusing. Um, I guess, is it okay for you in a movie like this if if you're left with logic gnawing at your at nipping at your heels? I guess you know it doesn't mm-hmm. even if it doesn't ruin the movie, but you're like I just can't quite figure this out because even in Infinity War, which you and I both liked, I love at, I love Infinity War. I, I do too, and I think it feels a lot more like the Empire Strikes Back of this series, mm-hmm. having seen this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Empire Strikes Back, it doesn't have you know you don't have to solve anything. It's okay to be left with a cliffhanger. In this movie, it has to solve things, and so I feel like. There will be a little bit of a gnawing, like, did, did, did they did they really get this right. perfect? Mm-hmm. You know, they, they made us feel good. They made yes. us feel excited. But did they get a perfect? Did, will that affect your long-term uh, feeling about the movie? So mostly no, but with a slight caveat. I think mostly no, because ultimately the trade-off worked in the film's favor, which is if you're willing to, um, not, it's not even suspending disbelief. You're just willing to suspend the instinct to ask a question, then you can benefit fully from what that storytelling tactic allows them to achieve, which is literally a stroll through memory lane. We go back to previous Marvel movies. They're not just going back to the moment when Thanos snapped his fingers, which I think a lot of people predicted would be the time travel aspect of it. Maybe it would involve the quantum realm, maybe it would involve the time stone, but that that was the thing they needed to undo. What what the film ultimately hinges on plot-wise is going back to prevent him from getting the stones in the first place. And the idea that each stone has to be retrieved from a specific moment in time so that it can then ultimately be returned to that exact moment in time thus preserving the timelines. You just did an amazing job of describing what happens. And I think until you said that, I didn't even totally understand what had happened. Uh, that, that is, that's, that's weighty stuff. That's not, yeah. that's, th- imagine the literally millions of people that are going to see this movie this weekend. Yeah. Trying to figure out what's going on there. So I have spent like a mortifying amount of time in recent weeks and months thinking about whether Bran could be the Night King, (laughs) which involves, like at the expense of relationships in my life, you know, which involves... Matt, we love and support you. (laughs) Thank you. A lot of time thinking about, well, what happens if the Three-Eyed Raven goes back to the long night, tries to figure out what happened, and gets trapped in another consciousness, basically. And I still was like, I don't really understand what's going on here, even with a moment in the film where there is literally a visual representation of the timelines when Bruce Banner is meeting, (laughs) meeting with the ancient one, having a chat on the roof. And we get this visual of what our primary timeline looks like and what it would look like if you pulled a stone out and a, a timeline, I don't know why I'm gesticulating with my hands like this. People can't see me, but another time, like you'd get a, like, okay, picture the trunk of a tree or a road, and then you have an off-ramp, and that's your new timeline. And so if you return the stone to the exact moment, then you don't have the ramp. You, like, close off construction on the ramp and preserve something. Even with a visual aid like that, I just found myself thinking over and over again, but how? Because I I think that no matter what version of time travel you see in a given story— you know, I like Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is one of my favorite works of fiction that involves time travel— the idea of consequences is elemental to time travel as a philosophical and practical enterprise. That is what Back to the Future does so well. Yes. The, the vanishing image in the photograph in Back to the Future is one of the most crushing images in basically yes. in science fiction storytelling. Right. 
So if you can't change anything about your future self, this is a slight oversimplification, but basically then what is, what is everyone so afraid of? So I'll make a, a confession right now. I went to the bathroom uh, <laughs> when the Ancient One and Bruce Banner had a conversation on a rooftop in New York City in 2013, which is essentially, that leads us into, a, I think, a significant part of the conversation about this movie, which is deeply related to time mm-hmm. travel, which is when the figures in the film, the, the I think it's six figures team up to go back into time, maybe eight figures go back into time at various stages, not just in their history, mm-hmm. but in the history of the MCU. Mm-hmm. Now, this is one of the most self-reflexive things I've ever seen in mm-hmm. a movie. But what you have essentially is, I believe you have Iron Man and Captain America and Bruce Banner travel back in time to the Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. You have Nebula and War Machine <laughs> yeah. travel back in time to the 2014 Guardians of the Galaxy movie. I can't wait to talk about Nebula with you. You Continue. have <laughs> Thor and... Rocket Raccoon <laughs> traveling back in time to Thor's The Dark World. Iconic duo. Uh, I mean, sure. <laughs> they fit together. And then you you kind of sort of have a trip to Avengers Infinity War. In fact, the timeline in which something is happening is before Avengers Infinity War, but Hawkeye and Black Widow yes. go to Vormir. Yes. To, 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 to get the Soul Stone. To get the Soul Stone. Mm-hmm. And each, each of these characters has gone back into this time to get these stones. Now, there are three stones in New York City. Mm-hmm. There's one stone on Vormir. There's one stone on Morag. And there's one stone on Asgard. Mm-hmm. This is really cool, mm-hmm. but also imagine being like a run-of-the-mill human being who's never seen a Marvel movie and right. then just feeling like, oh, I heard Endgame is like a big deal. Maybe I'll give it a shot. <laughs> right. And then going into that movie, it must be the most confounding experience ever. And I yeah. I found myself feeling like the best possible version of Stockholm Syndrome when I was watching it. I was like, wow, they definitely did just take up so much of my life and time right. that I feel totally comfortable with this story choice. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you make of the idea to just go inside of these other movies? I loved it. It was really cool. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> it works really well. Like, that's where I'm willing to say, okay, I, I I did my due diligence by asking a handful of questions about the rules of the universe and the canon, and now I'm like, okay, I'm good with it. Because we've spent so much time with, not just with these characters, but with these this version of these characters. Because obviously these characters have existed in many forms for many people for much longer than the phases of the MCU. That's right. Liter- was, literally 80 years. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking this morning about the fact that the first movie in Phase 1, Iron Man, came out in the first week of May of 2008, which is a week before I graduated college. So, like, my entire adult life, the MCU has been churning out movies. I saw Iron Man, Carousel Mall in Syracuse, New York, when I was still in college, and then everything that's happened in the MCU since I've been like a person in the world. And it was just fa- it was just interesting to think about that and how much like space of my life the movies have occupied and I'm sure every person seeing them has their version of that experience or not. I think to your point if it's an or not it, it might be like a pretty alienating experience, but if you do have your version of that whether you binged all of these in the last year, you've been consuming them from the beginning or anything in between, it felt like a way of almost like honoring your time and honoring the commitment that we, the collective viewing public, have spent investing in this story. And I I thought that there was a, a pretty impressive balance in the movie, actually, despite how long it took for the new Avengers, basically, to come into it and how limited the setup was for the future. You know, you noted the, the lack of an end credit scene that we do get the sound. It was mostly about saying goodbye to this moment in time while also still keeping you hyped for 
what's next, what's to come. And it's not like we return to necessarily iconic moments or the moments that people cherish the most, though in some cases we did. But it was just like a reminder of how much of our lives we've invested in watching this happen. And I I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I wasn't bothered by it either. I had a slightly different context for what was happening when Iron Man came out. And that's the and I wrote about this, George W. Bush was the president of the United States, mm-hmm. which feels like a, a, a quite a long time ago. Yeah. And in fact, was a long time ago. And in, and in fact, Iron Man, regardless of your political affiliation, is a very Bush-era movie. You know, mm-hmm. that's a movie about arms trading and arms dealing and international conflict in the Middle East and who has power by dint of weaponry. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, these movies are about that, but we're pretty far afield from the modest concerns of billionaire Tony Stark and whether or not the right person bought his weapons that he designs. Mm -hmm. And I nevertheless felt like it's a lot to ask. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. a lot to ask that your common moviegoer, Mm -hmm. not people like you and I, who are not just completists, but like kind of unnervingly passionate about these things. (laughs) Uh, And I I really quite like the Marvel movies. I wouldn't have devoted as much time as I have to them on this show if I didn't. Um, If you just just happen to miss Thor The Dark World, I think that there are just parts of the scenes in that movie are just going to seem confusing. Like, we know that Rene Russo's character dies, Thor's mother, but there's something emotionally more resonant if you have seen The Dark World. You you quite infamously are a big fan of The Dark World. I ride for that movie. It's like my least popular dig, but I, I, I ride for it. The only people I know who ride for the movie are the hosts of the Blank Check podcast, great movie podcast, and Mel. That's Those are the only people I know that like that movie. Okay, so I'm going to attempt some logistical gymnastics here to connect riding for Dark World with why I think the thing that you're describing is maybe okay. Okay. You don't actually have to care about all of the people and all of the relationships for the movie to completely completely like grab you and pull you into its grasp. I don't really remember, or I didn't before refreshing on it for this, all of the plot specifics of Dark World. You know, I remember Natalie Portman like suspended in the middle of the air as forces coursed through her. Which is how I know how you feel when you look at Natalie Portman. But my Long Island queen. (laughs) Shout out to Natalie Portman. But who appears in this movie and does not speak. (laughs) An incredible thing. (laughs) What a flex. There are a lot of flexes of people showing up in the movie and not talking. Hers might be the biggest because I don't even think her eyes are ever open. Well, the first time you see the back of her head and Fat Thor is like, it's Jane. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, they they couldn't get her. And it's just a person with brown hair. But then you end up seeing her face. You do. But, you know, you can apply this to the the question you just raised about, okay, well, if you don't know about Thor and his mom, can you invest in what's happening there? Or just the fact that, like, not everybody who's seeing this maybe saw Captain Marvel or... The fact that not everybody is invested in War Machine or Hawkeye or or Black Widow as characters, and you spend a a ton of the first two-thirds of the movie with them. The things that you are invested in, the friendship between Captain America and Iron Man, Thor's incredibly organic, comedic energy with the Guardians, those things just pulse so fully throughout the rest of the movie that everything else kind of like it's almost like the shadow of the Hulk over anything he's standing by it doesn't mean the things under him aren't there it just means that you don't have to look at them if you don't want to I think that's really well put I do think that in many ways 
the Thor Guardians thing is the most exciting thing about it and what's happening in these movies. It's amazing. It's really, really fun. <laughs> and, the, and the way that the movie ends clearly sets us up for a kind of shared mm-hmm. universe in a lot of ways. Um, of the three sort of journeys that yeah. these characters go on, which is which was the one that you thought was the best? Because the, the, the core Avengers one, the one in New York City during the Avengers, is certainly the biggest. They're right. in pursuit of the most stones. It's the most complex. Right. I would say it also has the most kind of winky-winky, mm-hmm. self-referential moments. I got, I got my... My friend Grillo yes. fix there. <laughs> uh, the Guardians moment is, I think, a little bit, um, it's a part of what is confusing to me about some of the time travel stuff, mm-hmm. because that is where Thanos becomes aware of the plot. Yes. The reconstituted Thanos, yeah, I, guess, I guess, from the past. Right, we haven't said that. So they kill our Thanos basically immediately. In the first six minutes of the movie, <laughs> Thanos shopping. dead. And then he comes back. Yes, because he's the in the past. past. Uh <laughs> There's a, we'll unpack a lot of that going forward, but that that Guardians moment is important, and it makes Nebula sort of the central figure of the story, ultimately, in a lot of ways, which, what a flex. Can we just share a, a quick behind-the-curtain moment? Yeah. We were we arrived at the screening, you know, promptly, I, might, I must say. We were on time. We were. And because we were on time, we got to look up at the screen for a long time, and on the screen, there was a giant projection of a poster for the movie. And obviously, they can't show you the characters who you don't know for sure are coming back, even though you know. And so we were basically asking each other, who of those people up there are you most invested in? And in order to make what I thought was the most absurd joke I could make, I said to you, I'm a real nebula head. (laughs) Never once considering that like 80% of the plot would hinge on Nebula. It's uh, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, again, this is sort of part of what makes Marvel as good yeah. at what they do as they are. I, they made a character that, like, I don't even really know anything about. Right. I don't know how canonical that character is at all. And I've read a lot of Marvel comic books. I'm not as strong on the space Marvel comics. But Nebula is a turning point figure. And so she is key to that Guardians moment. And also the, the 2014 version of Nebula in particular. Mm-hmm. Because they have a kind of shared yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi into R2-D2 kind of projection thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the the Vormir stuff. Yeah. The Which do you want to talk about first? The Avengers or Vormir? You pick. Okay, we'll talk about the Avengers because there's a lot to unpack there. The Captain America stuff is incredible. It's great. Captain it's great. America is the only character that really truly has a showdown with his with another version of himself. Yeah. And that's America's ass. <laughs> there's a lot of commentary about Chris Evans's ass. Amazing. Um it's a, it's one of the better battle sequences, I would say. It's one mm-hmm. of the few kind of one-on-one fight scenes. Mm-hmm. And I, I was struck, I rewatched Infinity War a second time last night. Mm-hmm. And in rewatching that, I was struck by just how much fighting there is in that movie. Yeah. This movie doesn't have a lot of fighting. It doesn't have, there's of course an epic battle sequence. Mm-hmm. One of the better battle sequences I think you'll see in a movie that has yeah. like a lot of chill-inducing moments. But as far as your like hand-to-hand combat stuff, you don't have it. Now, in that sequence, we we are reintroduced to Frank Grillo's crossbones. I was thrilled. Yeah, and, and Maximilio Hernandez's <laughs> uh, shield agent, a.k.a. Hydra double agent. Mm-hmm. And we're reminded of that great elevator fight yep. sequence from the Captain America film. But then they don't fight in that elevator. Mm-hmm. He exits the elevator. He's holding the scepter. He's got the stone he needs. And then... He encounters 2013 Steve Rogers. Um, just great stuff. Ant-Man popping the pin in <laughs> Tony's hardware. All of that. That was maybe the best sequence actually for showing how much thought and care they had put into the logistics of the fact that they're all standing there with past versions of themselves. And what happens if you risk short-circuiting original Iron Man and 
new Iron Man is standing there watching and what happens if someone just kicks a briefcase at the wrong moment you've put every every bit of your intellect and planning prowess into this and then just a thing slides in the wrong direction and that's all that matters I, I really enjoyed also just like getting to see Loki for example and though though counterpoint to my own praise here Loki vanishes himself with the scepter which then opens up a question. The Tesseract. To, with the Tesseract. So... Where'd that one go? Yeah. I know. Where's that Loki? And if that that Loki is supposed to eventually go on to become the Loki who dies, does that not happen or does it happen because our understanding is that the future is preserved? So could that new Loki who vanished himself come back into the story? Let's do a little behind-the-curtain uh, ringer editorial. After I saw the movie, I was talking with Andrew Gretadaro, our culture editor, about what to do with some mm-hmm. of this stuff. And the time travel stuff is so confounding that Andrew very wisely landed on the right solution, which is, let's have Ben Lindbergh figure this out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, Ben will figure it out on the ringer.com at some point soon, because there are a lot of these wormhole ideas. It, the, it, it's actually more of a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And if you start going down it, you can get confused from what mm-hmm. is the, the core of the story. Because if you think about Loki in that moment, when Loki... When the briefcase pops open, Loki picks up the Tesseract and he disappears. And you're like, oh shit, they failed. They failed again. Their plan failed. Right. And then Cap and Iron Man have the brilliant idea to go back even further uh-huh. to another time, which also would be okay, apparently, and would not disrupt the long-term time construct uh-huh. of the, these characters' lives. Right. Which is, I believe, 1970. They need more PIM particles. They need more PIM particles. Because they only had enough initially to do the jump once per person. Plus the initial trial runs, which is a great comedic moment when <laughs> instantly blow one of the trial runs. I do think, I will say, I think everything with Ant-Man in this movie is fabulous. It's great. It's a, Paul, Paul Rudd is so good. I completely agree. He is much needed, too. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of the first 90 minutes or so would feel a little too weighty without him. And he is our avatar in a lot of ways. He's mm-hmm. the guy who's like, not, I can't believe I'm here. Yes. I, yeah. He's not really an Avenger. All of his reactions are authentic. There's that great moment where... The ship lands and then uh, Hulk appears when he's out on the tarmac and he's just trying to eat a taco. <laughs> and, you know, you you yeah, feel like... That's amazing. You know, there's something common man about Paul Rudd, which is great. But when we go back to 1970, again, this is just really confusing. Yeah. They've gone back even further. Mm-hmm. And so we get the opportunity to see Peggy Carter again and we get the chance to see Howard Stark again. Mm-hmm. Those moments are great. It's really cool to see uh, Tony Stark have a conversation with his father, right. the adult version of his father, which is a trope we've seen before in time mm-hmm. travel movies. It's really great to see Captain America look longingly at Agent Carter and think about what could have been, which of course pays off mm-hmm. into the, the movie. Boy, does it. Uh, they get a chance to acquire more PIM particles and we get a chance to see my, Michael Douglas circa 1970 with his China Syndrome haircut. <laughs> Phenomenal. Um, but if you try to unpack what they're really doing there, it's just wild confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's a fun storytelling trick that doesn't necessarily hold up to the logic of the thing that we're talking about. Nevertheless, I think that that Avengers whole sequence, the acquisition of those three stones, mm-hmm. the reacquisition of more pin particles, all that stuff is a huge success. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed the uh, time stone aspect of that because I thought that was the area where they did the best job of knitting together what had happened in Infinity War and where what ultimately happens in this movie because the, you know, Bruce is not able. He's losing. He's losing this conversation. He's losing this exchange. You, you do not see a way forward for him convincing the Ancient One to hand this over because, of course, this is before Stephen Strange became the Sorcerer Supreme. This is before he became the Guardian of the Time Stone. She has it. And it's the moment where, in essence... Bruce says, 
a version of, well, I like don't understand why Strange would have handed over the stone if he didn't think that 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 doing so was going to bring us to the one in 14 million endgame scenario that we were going to win. And it's hearing that, that the person who was entrusted above all else to protect this thing had willingly handed it over that convinces her to then give it to Bruce because she understands that it means it's a part of the plan. One of my favorite things in stories is this, this dissonance between choice and destiny. If something is predetermined, do the decisions that you make matter? And if they don't, then what's the point of all of it? And I liked a moment like that because I thought it navigated the abyss between those ideas quite well and showed that there actually can be a bridge. Somebody else made a decision that set everybody on the course that they're on. But the things that they do along the way still have to happen or the ultimate outcome won't be the same. And so I thought that whole sequence conveyed the philosophy behind this actually quite well. That was a very sophisticated reading of a key theme in the movie. That being said, I want to ask you about Hulk. Um, <laughs> we get we get a new version of Hulk here. And, and when I was rewatching Infinity War, I was reminded of the true blue balls moment of Infinity War, which is uh, no yeah. Hulk. You know, yeah. we just don't get... Banner does not can't become Hulk, and we are teased. And he's mm-hmm. just, you know, he fights in the Hulkbuster and all that stuff. And you and I did mention before Endgame began that we're a little out on Ruffalo's performance in Infinity War. He's the one guy who's kind of acting like he's in a comic book movie, and that's why it doesn't really work all the time. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think so, um, yeah. And so in yeah. this movie, we're introduced to a, a new Hulk, Banner Hulk, mm-hmm. which is, a, that is canonical. That is a version of the Hulk, which is that he has the brain and disposition of Bruce Banner, but he has the body and power of the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, what a what a boon for his dating life. Uh, he seems to be quite a social media star <laughs> in this film. People are looking to get selfies with him left and right. He seems to be kind of a master of the selfie in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Um, his cheese is green. Um, <laughs> I I can't say I, I love this, though. This mm-hmm. This was one of the few things that, I found a little bit confusing. And one of the reasons why I think that Ancient One sequence that you're describing works so well is because the Ancient One essentially rocks Banner out of the Hulk body. Yes. And it's the one time when we see Ruffalo Mm -hmm. as himself. Right. And, you know, the Hulk is an interesting character. I think he is like a chaos agent in a lot of these Marvel movies. And that's part of what's so appealing about him. And making him so controlled vanquishes a little bit of his power and unpredictability. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. I I think it does, especially because... You know, one of the themes not only of this movie, but of all superhero stories on some level is like the goodness <laughs> within, which ends up being particularly relevant in this movie when Captain America wields Thor's hammer, proving himself worthy. Another massive spoiler for Bobby. It just a, <laughs> I, I'll say plainly that that to me was both the most exciting and most confusing moment of mm-hmm. the movie. Right. And it underscores a little bit of the tension of the conversation we're having, mm-hmm. which is this movie, I think in many ways, rules. <laughs> like there are just moments in it where I was like, yes, yeah. this is extremely fun. Mm-hmm. And then there are other moments where I was like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Because of course we know that the hammer mm-hmm. uh, can only be lifted by Thor. We have seen in Avengers Age of Ultron that no one can lift the hammer in the Avengers with the slight wiggle mm-hmm. that Cap gets on it. And there's a, that's a, you know, it's one of the great sight gags in the Marvel movies is no one being able to lift that hammer. But then Cap not only lifts the hammer, but he wields the hammer. He channels the electricity of the God of Thunder. Right. So this is comic book canon that Captain America can and has wielded the hammer. And the thing that I found myself 
confused by and thinking about a lot is that Captain America in many ways is supposed to be like the embodiment of good intention. So obviously he possesses the strength. And then if the other factor is worth, was why wasn't he worthy in Ultron? And then, you know, you factor in something like Vision wielding it to basically convince people, the fact that he can convince his people that he's on the side of good. So what? why wasn't he worthy in Ultron? I, this is why we bring you on the big picture. <laughs> it's this kind of content. I was doing some research and the the thing that kept popping up um, actually in preview posts for the movie, people anticipating that this might happen as a, a key moment at the end of the this um, Chris Evans, Captain America arc, is that he hadn't told Tony at that point that Bucky had killed his parents. And so that he had this little bit of like rotten toxicity inside of him. And that once he purged himself of that, he was then worthy. Though... Not to keep getting to the the time stuff and the the potential uh, problems that it creates. By that point, he hadn't. Well, the hammer doesn't exist anymore in the present timeline, right? Because it's destroyed in Ragnarok. So they get it. Thor gets it back when he goes into the past. And that version of the hammer was before he had told him. But and also then does he not have it anymore? This is so confusing. Like in all the other Thor movies, <laughs> will he not have it? <laughs> I don't know. We could really talk ourselves yes. into into a blue streak. Here. The reason I brought all that up in, in answer to your your Hulk query though was because the thing that makes Hulk so interesting is that he's not always in control of his good intentions. Yes, and the fact that the person at the heart of him possesses this nobility and this honor in many moments, doesn't matter. And that's a pretty effective commentary on life. You know, you can want to do the right thing, and sometimes you're just not able to for various reasons, the context around you, the something else that's powering you in a given moment. And so for him to be fully in control of his faculties is ultimately less, just makes him a less compelling character. I did think it led to, like, numerous highly amusing gags in the movie. The selfie thing that you referenced earlier was hysterical, and then Ant-Man's like, do you want one with me? And the kids are basically like, who are you? That was just great. It's great. It was sort of the Jon Snow is short version, (laughs) the sort of nobody knows who Ant-Man is. Totally. And, you know, Hulk having to uh, basically feign the interest in smashing cars so that he could pretend when they were back in New York that that he was proper Hulk. That was good. Stuff, Stuff like that is great. Let's transition from the Hulk to Black Widow because I think the simmering tension between Hulk and Black Widow has been a key element of the Avengers movies over the years. Mm-hmm. Amanda Dobbins and I have have shipped their their potential sex session, which is alluded to in this movie and then never actually pays off. And the reason it doesn't pay off because, of course, Hawkeye and Black Widow go to Vormir. And in order to acquire the Soul Stone, you have to make a grave sacrifice. Right. Someone has to die. Mm-hmm. So two people go to Vormir. One comes back. The person who dies is Black Widow. Yep. And I was shocked. <laughs> I really thought Hawkeye was going to die. Yeah. This is one of the best parts of the movie. I think it's probably the most one of the most emotionally resonant parts of the movie. I found the Vormir stuff in Infinity War to be fine. Mm-hmm. I, I don't totally understand why Red Skull was the keeper of that stone or the mm-hmm. keeper of that, that quest. Mm-hmm. In this movie, it works a little bit better because he just kind of shows up, says stuff, and then goes away. And it just becomes a conversation about two characters, neither of whom had any powers. (laughs) I would say two characters who, beside Thor and the Hulk and Captain America and even the incredible technology of Iron Man, just seem like weak. And I've always, it's always been, it's kind of a running gag of like, this guy has arrows. You know, there's a big joke about it in Ultron where he's like, I just have arrows and I'm fighting an alien invasion. And... I don't know why. I mean, we, th- there's a clear reason why I thought, I thought Black Widow would survive, which is we know there's a Black Widow movie coming. Mm-hmm. And one of the confusing 
chessboard aspects of these movies is they have to build anticipation for these movies years in advance. Right. And Marvel has been expert at this. Mm-hmm. And the, the anticipation machine gets us going two, three, even four years in advance of some stuff. And maybe right at the end of this pod, we'll talk about kind of what comes next for the MCU. Right. But knowing that there's a Black Widow movie, I was like, well, see you later, Hawkeye. And then Black Widow dies. It's very shocking. It's a very elegantly composed kind of balletic action sequence between yeah. the two of them. What, are you, what did you make of that scene? Uh, even now, I'm shocked by how much I loved it. Because I have, and I mean this sincerely, and no shade at anybody who feels differently, zero emotional investment in either of these characters. Same. And I was riveted, absolutely riveted watching this. You said to me afterwards that you were always confused why they never let Jeremy Renner act in these movies. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to hear, you know, you and Chris and Andy talk about. Like, not only is Jeremy Renner a very gifted house flipper, but he's a very gifted (laughs) practitioner of the theatrical arts. And it was really, really wonderful to get to watch him act in this movie. It's interesting. I was... I was sure that she would be the one to die once they were in that situation because the movie opens with Hawkeye watching his family vanish around him, his wife, his children. And then he breaks bad and he goes on this vengeance quest that she then has to pull him out of. And I think just basically the morality of these movies seem to be heading toward him seeking redemption after that and if he had just died I mean I guess he could have achieved it just by being there in the first place and opting back in but I thought the sacrifice was going to be the thing I thought that was going to be the thing that was going to redeem him Um, I just felt like he had to reunite with his family after the way the movie had opened whereas we have you know other than the fact that her father's name is mentioned in this sequence no connection to other parts of her life at all I thought that the um, the the visuals of the sequence, you know, the, the, that balletic nature that you described, the choreography of it was just like absolutely mesmerizing. And I I think that this you could hold up this sequence as being really emblematic of what maybe the most impressive thing that any of these movies do. And it's really make you invest in something that you don't think you care about. You know, watching these two people literally pull each other back from the chasm of death and crawl and shoot and run and jump to the point where, you know, it's not subtle. They are hanging over an open pit (laughs) that represents the end and they're both so eager to jump into it. I just thought that was incredible to get us to care about either of them making it out of that alive. And I think also... The soul stone and the magic of it was is one of the more interesting things to me. I agree. I ultimately agree with you about the the way that played out in Infinity War, but I liked what it made us think about, which is, you know, in that moment, Gamora basically thinks that Thanos is lost because the idea of sacrifice means that you actually are invested in something. You know, like you can only you can't feel remorse if you're not capable of actually being sorry about something or loving something or caring about it in the first place. You can't make a sacrifice if you don't love anything. And the fact that he ultimately did love something was weirdly humanizing. And it's important to humanize your villains. I would love, by the way, at some point to talk about uh, proof that Thanos' plan was bad based on how shitty Earth looked, but I'll save that for later. So thinking about sacrifice, it's like if the other person has to lose something, but the person they're losing is choosing to be lost, does that count? I just think that's fascinating to think about. And ultimately, the answer is obviously yes, because it's a soul for a soul. 
And then the stakes of that are so high when we realize later that she can't, they can't bring her back. That's it. That death of all these deaths is final because the nature of what you have to pay, the price that you have to pay to retrieve that magic and to channel it and to harness it is forever. And I like thinking about that. There is a little bit of retconning that goes into that. And let's use this as an opportunity to talk about not just more deaths, but the the, the Thanos of mm-hmm. it all. Of course, Gamora does come back in this yep. movie. It is the 2014 version yeah. of Gamora that comes back. But that sacrifice... Angry the, Gamora. Angry, Nemo Gamora. Yes, yes. And, and unresolved, unaware of Peter Quill Gamora. <laughs> and Great moment later when she meets him and is like, this is the guy. <laughs> it's good stuff. Uh, shout out to my wife who when I asked her and I ran down the list of all of the male Marvel superheroes who she was into, she said, Chris Evans, no. Robert Downey Jr., no. Mark Ruffalo, no. This guy, no. Chris Hemsworth, no. And then she said, Chris Pratt. Yeah. Fat Pratt. That's who she's into. I love it. You too. Um, Thanos dies very early on in this movie, as we mentioned. Thor cuts his head off. (laughs) Quite angrily takes Stormbreaker. I went for the head. He he goes for the head. That's great. Uh, This is a diminished Thanos Mm -hmm. who is, I guess, living in some sort of a treehouse. This is the paradise that he said he he would go see. I weirdly found myself thinking about the end of Battlestar Galactica. Never seen it. Oh, my God. Tempted to get up and walk out of the room. Okay, please stay. And I I won't spoil Battlestar Galactica on this podcast for people, but there is a moment where a character basically finds himself in this place of peace that that was always the goal, to just get to this little house on a hill where you could just look out and watch the sunset. And the thing is, the person he was supposed to be there with isn't there. (laughs) And it's like... Devastatingly sad and really beautiful all at the same time. And I found myself thinking about this moment that's like really important to me, one of the most important things in culture to me. And associating it with Thanos, who's the bad guy. And just the fact that the movie could get me to make a connection like that at all for somebody who is a monster who just wiped out half of life in the universe, I thought was pretty impressive. Testament to Brolin, testament to the archaeology yeah. of the movie. He's just out there collecting fruit and veggies in his sack. Like literally carrying around a sack, picking crops, and then going into his hut. Yeah, and so soon he dies, and so we get that okie doke of we've been waiting for 11, 12, 13 movies since we became aware of Thanos, Mm -hmm. I guess, since the original Avengers movie, for someone to kill him. He dies. Mm -hmm. That doesn't end the story at all. No. In fact, it begins the story. And then, you know, we, we see Black Widow die. We see the acquisition of all of these stones. But because of that and because of that nebula thing that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. 2014 Nebula becomes aware of what 2024 Nebula is up to. And so then Thanos becomes aware of it. And then so then Thanos realizes he needs to go into the future so that he can acquire the new stones that have been pulled from the past. Right. And Thanos and his children return. And this is the most significant thing that happens in the movie from a storytelling perspective, because Mm -hmm. not only does it instigate some incredible fight sequences, especially one between Cap and and Thanos, which is the moment when he uses Thor's hammer, as we yeah. described. But it then also leads to the return of the key figures. Now, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the battle, and I want to talk about all the people who return. Before we do that, let's just talk about the idea of bringing Thanos and his army and his children back into the movie. Because we already saw the <laughs> Avengers fight Thanos and his army. Yep. And then they fight him again. Yep. Uh, did, did that work for you? It did ultimately because I guess I didn't ever consider any other <laughs> outcome. Like it's ultimately this this Infinity Saga is about this villain and this quest to stop him. 
And it's about a lot of other things within that, but whether they were going to bring the people back first or after, or take the stones from him, stop him from getting them, use the stones, it still ultimately had to be about facing him and beating him. And as convoluted as it is, I actually like the commentary of basically saying, well, okay, just cutting his head off. That's not really winning. You know, that's not really what victory looks like for these heroes. It's preserving something about the sanctity of life and the universe that they're charged with protecting. And so to watch, this is actually another plot logistics question that I have. I don't, I'm sure there's something in the canon that explains this. I don't understand how Iron Man is able to use the stones and and Hulk before him basically to do exactly what they want. Whereas when Thanos snapped his fingers, the whole point was that it's impartial. You know, I, I don't really get how that worked. And there's not, and I, unless I missed it, not an effort made to explain how it works. I mean, I think, but ultimately he's undone by the thing that he, by his own pursuit. You know, he vanishes and all of his minions do too. And that's like poetry. It is. I think that you could, I guess somewhat logically make the case that Hulk and Iron Man, when they snap their fingers, have intentionality about mm-hmm. the dis- who should disappear. Mm-hmm. And Thanos is purposefully trying to have an objective vagueness. Right. Yeah, I guess. I don't, I don't know. These are very powerful stones, Mallory. I guess like the reality stone gives you the reality you want. Perhaps. I that seems know. like a reasonable expectation. But so, you know, like you said, <laughs> Iron Man uh, uh, builds a new infinity gauntlet of his own. Mm-hmm. Hulk puts it on. He snaps his fingers. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, he doesn't snap them quick enough to uh, eliminate 2014 Thanos, who comes back from the quantum realm, same way that the Avengers got back into the present day. He fires a series of missiles that destroys the Avengers' home base. And yet they all live. They all survived. I noticed that too, including <laughs> the human them. beings who don't have powers. <laughs> a, little, a little suspicious there. I mean, there's a meteor-sized hole in the earth from the force of these missiles, and they all live and are in peak fighting shape. Yes. Uh, very quickly, the dog alien monsters come for yeah. the rubble. They yep. they pursue the Infinity Gauntlet. They pursue Hawkeye. They pursue um, all of the surviving Avengers. Mm-hmm. We get this showdown with Cap and Thor and Thanos, which is very, very, great, very exciting. It's just, <laughs> Honestly, great. It's just very good. It's just sort of like, <laughs> this is why I, I invested my time in this. Yeah. Um, they have a vicious battle. And then, of course, because... Hulk has snapped his fingers wearing the Infinity Gauntlet, everybody starts to return. And it's right at the peak moment when we feel like Cap is going to die. And there's an expectation that Cap is going to die in these movies. Yes. I compared it to you after the film to John's solo stand in the Battle of the Bastards. It's like actually almost a mirror shot. You're one hero who is willing to do anything, including giving his own life, finding the courage somehow to stand there in the face of literal doom. And that was amazing. And then just like Davos and Tormund and the cavalry all eventually send the forces forward and rush in just in time to be there for John. all the portal, we hear Sam. We hear Sam in his earpiece first. Cap. And it's like, people in the theater screamed, you know? And that's one of the really fun moments that a Marvel movie can give you. Yes. And then all of the portals open and I I really like Doctor Strange and I really like um, all of that magic and thinking about how it works one of my favorite moments is in, in Infinity War is the dude you're embarrassing me in front of the wizards exchange <laughs> <laughs> which is iconic and it's just it's a perfect visual representation of all of these people coming together basically of what this entire saga was all about these portals open 
all of our heroes return through them. People we maybe didn't even think we would see. You know, obviously Valkyrie comes in earlier in the film when we see Thor, Fat Thor and New Asgard, but Valkyrie there, Pepper? We get Iron Gwyneth. <laughs> Incredible. Iron Man Gwyneth Paltrow. Everyone is there. Obviously, the return of Spider-Man is like incredibly emotional and awesome. Was that the loudest cheer that you heard? The return of Spider-Man? I don't think it was really close, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think... That's very notable yeah, to me. Yeah, Black Panther got a huge scream, but... And, and cer- I mean, certainly when when Cap wields the the hammer, that was like people were losing their minds. But I think that... I think the Spider-Man scream was the loudest. People seem extremely... And, and that was also the most like notable, um, audible collective sniffle, I think, when he and Iron Man are reunited. Um, it's amazing what they've done with that. You know, I just yeah. did an episode of the show with Adam Neiman about Spider-Man Homecoming, uh-huh. and we talked a lot about how they made an Iron Man and Spider-Man father-son relationship seem authentic. Uh-huh. And that really pays off in this movie in a, in a in an honest way. Yeah. I mean, especially given how much of the beginning of the film is Tony with his actual child and getting you to invest in that relationship and the, you know, the the hesitance that he has to help them figure out the time heist is because he's not very reasonably, by the way, like not willing to risk this new thing that he's built and found. And to get you to buy in so fully to his relationship with his actual daughter's precious little child, Morgan, loves him 3,000. 3,000. <laughs> and to also invest that fully still in the relationship that he has with Peter and to not feel in any way like one diminishes the others is really miraculous. So when I wrote about this, I wrote about it as Marvel's splash page moment. So if you are a reader of comic books or perhaps a reader of Playboy magazine (laughs) or a reader of newspapers, there is something called the splash page. Now in comic books, it's typically one standalone page full illustration Mm -hmm. of a single image. Mm -hmm. The best splash pages in comics history are two pages. Mm -hmm. And the very best ones are at the center. They're where the staple meets the binding. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can see a full image. There's a very famous shot of all of the Marvel heroes in the Secret Wars story from 1984 that signifies that this is a true Mm team-up. And team-ups are like a core core theme, a core eventizing of comic book storytelling. Mm -hmm. I've not seen a a movie iteration of this in any meaningful way until this movie. It reminds me, I think the closest that we get is probably the Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. in terms of like a battle where you're like, oh, everybody is here to battle. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of Star Wars moments maybe, particularly in the prequels, which are not very good, but you do see a lot of like showdowns or with battles against armies of droids. But this movie has that like, oh, there's that guy and then there's that woman and then there's that person and then there's that person. And you're sort of picking people out from the frame. And, you know, we can attest to this because we sat through the entire credits of this movie and we saw just how many digital artists work on oh this movie. God. I mean, it's literally hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people who are basically painting this movie. Mm-hmm. And this entire sequence is one big painting. It's mm-hmm. a, it's like, it's a very uh, fanboy version of a Raphael painting you'd find in the Sistine Chapel. You I know? was literally just thinking exactly that because it feels like it spans across the sky. You know, you're looking at it and it's, it is one of the, I, I, I haven't, you know, I, I don't like leaving my home, as you know. And I like, <laughs> I have a, a, you know, have a, a nice TV, good speakers, so I very rarely feel compelled to leave my home. And this was one of those rare moments where I'm like, oh my God. Movies. I'm so glad I'm in a theater. Yes. I'm so glad that the screen is as wide as it can be for human eyeballs to perceive what it is showing me. And the Avengers Assemble cap moment when he's at the head of that was <laughs> just so cool. 
And one of the things I love, really loved was that you can, as the portals are opening, and everybody gets their own little moment, you know, you get to celebrate seeing T'Challa and Shuri, and you get to celebrate everybody individually, but then you pan out, and you can see through the portals into the cities that they're all coming from. And it's this, like, beautiful embodiment of the idea that that, you know, like the realms of men, not to keep quoting Game of Thrones, but there's obviously a lot of commonality with this stuff. They're in this one place, this Avengers headquarters location, like ground zero for the thing that they do, but they're connected to all aspects, not only of their world, but of the universe. And it's all coursing through into this same moment in space and time, even though part of the point of the Enterprise, and Captain Marvel reminds us of this many times over the course of the movie, is that it's all happening everywhere. Like, the narcissism of the human being is to think that it's only about us. And the movie, I think, effectively navigates that, reminding us that these same problems are occurring in all these different places, although Thanos is particularly eager to wipe out humanity. I just loved it. And the way that they show you that all in just a second on the screen is incredible. If you're looking for a reason to see this movie, if you're modestly interested in Marvel movies, this is the reason. This is the, this is like the payoff in a significant way. Now, we can use it to talk about sort of what happens in that battle sequence and then what the mm-hmm. aftermath of that is. I think the reason is um, pizza and beer with Fat Thor, but it's fine. Uh, maybe we should just do a standalone <laughs> Fat Thor pod. Um, I'm very, I, I'm very curious about some of the the sort of makeup and prosthetic technology used because there's no chance that Chris Hemsworth got fat. Oh, He's no, cer- certainly wearing some sort of bodysuit Eddie Murphy in the Nutty Professor situation. The commitment to the bit though is extraordinary. I spent the whole entire movie thinking, okay, this is the moment where some sort of thunder courses through him and he gets like unbelievably buff again, or you see him drinking some sort of elixir when he's back with his mom. Oh, this is the thing. No, he's fat the entire time, and it's an, it's amazing. And there's also that— He's also drunk. Wasted. He is <laughs> hammered. Literally. Yes. There's a great moment where his beard braids itself. It's great. As he readies for battle. Loved it. Figure, Marvel figuring out what to do with Thor over the course of the Thor story is kind of one of the great accomplishments of what they've done. And it, it's a sign that no matter how out you are on something, there's been a lot of talk about like DC, for example. Mm-hmm. The first three or four movies in the DCEU are just not very good. And they're just way too right. serious. And they're kind of ill-considered. And they just made a lot of mistakes. And now what they're doing is they're taking some of that learned behavior from Marvel movies, which is like, just chill out a little bit. Have more fun. Be a little bit more self-referential. Mm-hmm. And they're taking it to heart. And there's no better example than the Thor stuff, which just works really well. Nevertheless, let's get back to the serious of, of this movie. Um, it takes Iron Man to to ultimately defeat Thanos. Yes. And he, again, has to put that same Infinity Gauntlet on after stealing it off of Thanos' hands. We do see Thanos very briefly get the Infinity Gems back. Mm-hmm. Iron Man gets it back from him in a very clever turn of play. He gets the stones. Yes, he gets the yes. stones. That's right. He does not. He has, but he, yeah. he, has a, he has a gauntlet of his own. Mm-hmm. Snaps his fingers. All of the Thanos' family and that whole crew is gone. Yep. And then the weight is too much to bear. The power is too strong. Yep. Tony Stark, dead. He dies. He actually dies. Um, (laughs) It's really sad. Robert Downey Jr. is definitely the most important person that has been in these movies. He is the star of the first movie in the Uh series. He is the person that they have used to most effectively tell the story of other characters. I don't think Captain America works as a character if he is not in opposition Mm. to Iron Man. Interesting. I don't think Spider-Man is effectively reintroduced after getting five Spider-Man movies this century. And then we got what felt like the right Spider-Man movie Mm -hmm. because of Tony Stark. Tony Stark is 
a representation not just of wealth and power, but also of the sort of difficulty to find decency. Mm -hmm. And he is a person who is searching for his own evenness throughout the movies. He dies. It's, 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 it's extremely emotional. It really was. <laughs> it honestly it, really was. It's been, been funny to read a lot of the criticism in the first few days since the film's been released because, you know, a lot of the people who are film critics are middle-aged mm-hmm. and cynical mm-hmm. and people who write about movies are cranks mm-hmm. and I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. I can be a crank about a lot of things. You've heard me be a crank on this podcast. <laughs> uh, oh, I think a lot of them were like, I cried. I cried when Tony Stark died. I definitely cried. Uh, it's, it's, it's very well handled. That in particular is okay, this is the instant where this thing ends. This entire thing that they've built. And it becomes something else. And and of course, the symmetry of that, you know, the bookend of it with him being the one that they started it all around. And, you know, the the end credits, the absence of the, the, the stinger, the thing that we do get is this hammer sound. And some, you could theorize about whether that indicates, you know, the arrival of a new villain or a new Iron Man, but it is... I think undeniably the sound of him building the Iron Man suit for the first time. And it's this like be really beautiful emotional tribute at the end. Pepper's there with him <laughs> to kiss him goodbye. It's just like so sad. And then Peter's with him. I'm getting emotional. I can see you. The, the, the tears are appearing in your <laughs> eyes. This is really lovely. And you see the look on Cap's face. And the thing is, ultimately... Infinity War, I, I, the main conversation after it was like, well, what are the stakes, right? That is what I wrote about when the movie yeah. ended. And this moment, this death, undeniably had stakes. And I personally, you know, my feeling on the whole Infinity War stakes conversation was, well, I think stakes can come in many forms. And emotional investment in these people is a real thing, even if they ultimately come back and, you know, frankly, being reminded that it's worth emotionally investing in something either for us as viewers or the other characters in the story is a worthwhile pursuit. But when you see half of Tony's body fried from this gamma power coursing through him, and, you know, there's the whole exchange earlier in the film about how only Hulk can be the one to do it because we we just, we know that a human being cannot handle this power. And we've seen even Thanos fried from using it, but the original Thanos, who they they chop his head off, from the force of using it, it, kill, it basically broke even him. So you know what this is going to cost. It's, it's setting this up the entire time. And I think one of the best moments in the movie and the smartest choices is having Tony ask Doctor Strange after he comes back, is this the one? You know, you said that of the 14 million scenarios, there was one that we won. Is this it? And Doctor Strange basically says, I can't tell you that. And that, so before Tony even does this and dies, I think you know that that's what that means. He can't tell him because if he does, it's like, will he have the strength to make that choice then? You know, it has to be a pure sacrifice. And yet, right before you get that moment of acknowledgement between them where he looks over at him and he holds up the finger, one, this is it, this is it. I like that moment. It's great. Uh it's in stark contrast, I think, not just to Captain America, but to Chris Evans. Chris Evans, as a public figure, has been a little bit agonized as his uh-huh. role as a superhero figure. And he's always talking about the burden of playing Captain America. Not necessarily in a complaining way, but I think he he clearly was done with this. He was ready to be over. And so there was this expectation, as we mentioned earlier, that he was going to die. Mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr. has been a little bit more cagey about uh-huh. it. And Robert Downey Jr. has been a loyal soldier of the MCU. And so his death feels significant. What happens to Captain America is um, interesting. 
mm-hmm. the way that they choose to sort of wrap up his story and the and wrap up this movie, which is that Captain America has survived mm-hmm. Thanos's invasion from 2014 into 2024. Yep. Real twist. And at in this sort of coda, sort of the mm-hmm. sort of false ending at the end of the battle, Captain America decides he's going to go back into the past. Right. We have the funeral. We say our farewells. Say our farewells to Tony. And then Captain America wants to go back into the past. Now, I think, is it just to reunite with Peggy Carter? Do we know what he's planning to do beforehand? Did you have a sense of what his plan was? So he's taking the stones back. That's right. Yes. That's what it is. Yes. yes. Okay. He has Correct. to go take the stones back and return them to their original locations. And then this idea is that as much time, you have as much time as you need, but in the current moment, in our timeline, no time passes at all. And so they're bringing him back and, you know, Bucky and Sam, the two characters who everyone's like, which of them will be the next Captain America are there. And they bring up, they call him back in the moment when they're supposed to. And he's, he does, doesn't appear. He's not there. And then they see him in the distance. This shriveled old man on Sitting a on a bench, yes. And so I guess he just stayed and went back and found Peggy after he did the thing that he was supposed to do, which was return the stones. Right, the implication being, and then we ultimately do see it in the very last frames of the film, that he has spent his life yep. with Peggy Carter. He's got a wedding ring on. We see them dancing, having that dance at last. It's beautiful. I'm glad that um, Steve Rogers is no longer a virgin. That was my main takeaway from the movie. It's good for him. <laughs> They maybe should have put a sex scene right at the end of this movie, like a really graphic Agent Carter, Captain America sex scene. <laughs> Unfortunately, they don't do that. What I wrote down here is Captain America is old AF. Yeah. And um, a question that you had walking out of the movie is, can How? Captain America age? Yeah. Uh, I've done a little research. Mm-hmm. It turns out he can age. He yes. ages at a significantly slower pace right, than most of the humans. Serum, yes. The cell regeneration. But nevertheless, if he were to get from, if he were 20 at the beginning of Captain America, which I guess is about 1942, 1943, something around there, and then we go to 2024, he's still only about 100 years old, right? I, I, yeah, I guess. I thought he looked way too old. I was confused by this. I thought that the makeup was very good. Yeah, it was great. It was uh, great. Nevertheless, it, what I read is that he should live to about 120 to 140. Right. And if he's 100, he looks like he's about 80. So maybe that checks out? I guess, yeah, maybe. I guess so. Here's, can I can I ask 50 questions about this? Yes. So everything else still happens, which means that Steve Rogers, in his domestic bliss, just sits it all out, that version of him. Like he's watching all these horrors unfold around him, does nothing. Incredible discipline. We don't know. But I think we're supposed to believe that that happened, right? Because those timelines are preserved per your metaphor this could be an on-ramp to a captain america prequel if chris evans decides to get back in the game though what about chris evans in 1958 what about chris evans in 1984 this is one of my other questions what about agent carter though because there's an agent carter show and she's definitely single (laughs) Like, well, that show was canceled. I enjoyed so, it while uh, it was on. We don't have to worry about necessarily what happens in the extended Confusing. Agent Carter universe. Um, I think we're left with a lot of questions. I don't think we're going to be able to answer and all of them. And old Peggy finding him, you know, when he's discovered in the ice. Uh, it's very confusing. The time logic is just not going to be resolved. And attempting to resolve it will make us crazy. Not that we're <laughs> not already crazy based on the intensity of this podcast. Um, I have a couple of more things for you mm-hmm. as we wrap up this conversation. Okay. One, I want to know what your five favorite Marvel movies are now because this mm. is truly the end of this. Okay. And 
I've been thinking about this a lot. And you, I think you asked me on the way into, yeah. in, into the screening, and I wasn't quite sure where this sits. This movie would not make my top five. Same. Though I do think that that battle would make probably my top three of like, I'm glad I'm watching these. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. Um, reverse order, five to one? Yeah, please. Uh, number five, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, mm. which I love. Just think Bucky is like insanely hot. <laughs> If we're being Bucky, honest. Who will not be Captain America? <laughs> yeah, Sam, Sam will be will the be. new Captain America. Yeah. Um, I just I really love The Winter Soldier. I think that's a really fun movie. I like rewatching that. And I actually like all of the Captain America movies, but that's that's my pick from from those. Uh, I do too. And I will just use that as a moment to say we have not talked about the Russo brothers who directed this movie. Hmm. I talk to directors on this podcast all the time. I'd be remiss if I, I did not point out. You know, I think they really set the course in the last five yeah. to six years for all of these movies. They directed the last two Captain America movies, and they, of course, directed Infinity War and Endgame. Right. They've done a pretty darn good job. Amazing. Um, and those four movies are going to be 20 of the highest grossing movies of all time. Pretty impressive. Anyway, continue. Number four. Number four, uh, Thor Ragnarok. Great movie. Which I love. Me too. Uh, short hair Thor is the best thing that's ever happened to the MCU and Thor having long hair in this movie was a tragedy. (laughs) Um, Ragnarok is just such a delightful tonal shift and it is the like embodiment of two hours of fun at the movies. Uh, Three Guardians of the Galaxy. Wonderful film. Delightful. I enjoyed the musical cues in Endgame. I felt like it was a way of injecting a little bit of the Guardians' DNA before Star Lord comes back into the movie. Um, to Black Panther and one Infinity War. So that's wow. Infinity War number one. Yeah. Very. On the one hand, it's like is this recency bias? But on the other hand, I just think that they've figured a lot out. And Phase Three was really good. So that's. Yeah, that's three Phase 3 movies and two from Phase 2. My list is very similar. I have Infinity War at 5, Spider-Man Homecoming at 4, Thor Ragnarok at 3, Guardians of the Galaxy at 2, and Black Panther at 1. Now, I think these are conventionally understood to be the best movies Uh in this franchise. I love Homecoming, too. You know, they're the best-reviewed movies. Um, Winter Soldier is also among the best-reviewed movies. And there is a little bit of recency bias at play, but it's at play because, like you say— they just kind of figured something out yeah. both tonally and in a storytelling way in the last five years that is like genuinely exciting. And it doesn't, it makes me excited about what they're doing. You know, I, if you heard me talking about some of the earlier films in the series on the show, you could sense that I was kind of like, you know, the first Avenger is not that great. Like it has a lot of problems and it, that's okay. That, that was true because they needed to work through it. And most movies and most movie franchises don't get the chance to do that. Mm-hmm. I would say, it's honestly only action franchises, you know, James Bond, The Fast and the Furious, Mission mm-hmm. Impossible, movies that are not bound by mythologies right. that tend to be able to figure out how to be the best version of themselves, the most self-actualized version mm-hmm. of themselves. This is one of the rare big-time movie franchises that is telling one long story right. that actually figured it out in yeah. real time. So that's like kind of a reflection of the of my top five and yours, I think. Um, let's look ahead really quickly. Okay. We mentioned that there was no end credit sequence, mm-hmm. that there was this homage to the Iron Man building the suit, mm-hmm. which is a great call and something I did not realize walking out of the movie theater. We said Sam is Cap. Thor, it seems like, is basically a guardian. He just ends up on the guardian's <laughs> ship at the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. It's <laughs> an amazing dynamic between the Chris's there. Him and Pratt are just wonderful together. The way that they have injected the meta commentary on the Chris Wars into these movies is really, really 
absolute chef's kiss emoji, great. And that whole back and forth about like, we know who's in charge. We know who's in charge. We, it, it, I, I just love it. It was very it's fun. really wonderful. Poor Chris Pine on the outside looking in, you oh know? God, he I died know. so long I ago. I also like the way that when Sam picks picks up the the shield and, you know, Steve asks him how it feels, he's like, like it belongs to someone else. Mm, I like that moment. as, yeah, kind of ushering in the new, but also honoring the past. We haven't talked about Valkyrie at all, though she's pretty significant in this story. Yeah. Uh, Tessa Thompson returns, and at the end of the movie, we learn that she, I guess, is going to be the new king of the new Asgard. That's correct. Which is cool. I wonder if they'll make a Valkyrie movie. The, the old king only drank beer. That was what Fat Thor was doing, so it's time for new leadership. Truly. Someone with a vision. I think it's obvious that Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, and Captain Marvel are the centerpieces of this going forward, yeah. in addition to the Guardians. Yeah. Um... We're a long way away from that next Guardians movie, though. Yes, in part because James Gunn was fired and rehired. I'm happy he's back. I'm happy that they're going to be doing something with him. And I'm, I'm hopeful that Thor is a part of that story. I think that that makes a lot more sense than a new Thor movie. So do you think they're done making standalone Thor movies? Um, it's hard to say. I, I think part of the contingency with Hemsworth's desire to continue making these movies, and he has never said fully that he is out, but I think that he doesn't necessarily want to have to make another Dark World. So this seems like a good idea. And I think, honestly, the future of these movies and the future of these Disney Plus shows is the team-up. You know, we know, for, for right. instance, that WandaVision is going to be one of the shows that they're making. Mm-hmm. So that's a great way to get Scarlet Witch. We also haven't mentioned Envision, who does not appear in this movie, yeah. um, back together and back on screen and tell their stories together. Mm-hmm. So I think that that will be a way forward for some of this stuff. Um, I'm still, like, at a loss with Captain Marvel. I just don't think it works. <sighs> right. um, I, I don't think that... Quite a haircut. Brie Larson fits in. She She does get a haircut. <laughs> Um, I think that she has a little bit of a power problem, which you can read about on the ringer.com. Mm-hmm. Zach wrote about this really well. In some ways, it's just, it's a, that also is a recency thing where she's just a little late to the game. So we're not as invested in her. Right. And she, of course, like leads this very notable charge in the battle sequence of all female superheroes. Yeah. Which is. That was cool. It's, it's on the nose, but it works. <laughs> yeah. It really works. And that was great. But like the idea of being like, well, she is, she and Black Panther and Spider-Man are the future. I'm like. I definitely yeah. just want to watch Spider-Man and Black Marvel. <laughs> we'll see if they figure out the Captain Marvel thing. And then there's all these other movies that they, that they have planned. Uh-huh. And all of these movies, even by the terms of like Guardians of the Galaxy being a weird choice to make a movie about, are, are, are unusual. Right. Chloe Zhao, who has made two extraordinarily small films, uh-huh. including last year's The Rider, which is a great movie, uh-huh. is making The Immortals. I don't know anything about The Immortals. Apparently Angelina Jolie is going to star in it. Oh my goodness. And Kumail Nanjiani. Wonderful. Sounds good. These, the Immortals are the people who essentially created the heroes. So like Game of Thrones is doing the Age of Heroes prequel. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the Age of Heroes prequel. This is These are like interstellar beings who grant beings across the universe the power to be good or evil. Will I finally learn the Night King's motivation? Perhaps. Uh, perhaps Chloe Zhao knows. And then Shang-Chi, or Shang-Chi, I'm not sure the, the pronunciation, Master of Kung Fu, mm-hmm. which, you know, the Marvel notably got this stuff wrong with Iron Fist. Oh, yeah. And they're going to try to correct it. Um, so they're making... Master of Kung Fu at some point in the near future. That's really all we know about. If we want to really forecast, if I had to guess as a comics nerd, now that Fox is in the fold, they're going to reboot the X-Men. Certainly they're going to recast all the X-Men. There's going to be X-Men movies. Right. No, no question. I think Fantastic Four will come back. Right. We'll definitely see the Fantastic Four again. With Fantastic Four comes two things. One, Silver Surfer. There yeah. will be a Silver Surfer movie. There has to be a good Silver Surfer movie. Silver Surfer famously... How I won the Ringer superhero draft, that but it's fine. True. We don't we don't have to talk. Silver about Silver Surfer here. is one of the better characters in in all of Marvel, and with Silver Surfer comes Galactus. Galactus yes, and Galactus is the only super villain yes. that we've never seen because Galactus is almost too powerful, more powerful than Thanos. He is a devourer of worlds. Yes, <laughs> and 
If they're not going to Galactus for the next 10 years, Mm -hmm. I don't know where they're going to go. Right. So, okay, I have a question for you. The next Spider-Man movie is actually the end of Phase 3, right? That is what Kevin Feige says. Okay, so do you think that we're going to get something, I mean, it stands to reason that we have to, the end or somewhere in that movie that then gives us a clear answer here to what's next on the villain front? I, I assume so. We know that Mysterio is the villain of that movie. Mysterio, one of the cooler Spider-Man villains, though, if you're having a conversation about Thanos and and Galactus, he seems a bit small by comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the guy who just makes it look like things are happening that aren't actually happening. Mm-hmm. Sort of a living reality stone. But yeah, I would I would presume. I would presume that, and there's going to be a lot of anticipation for the Spider-Man movie that we'll get some sort of tease as to what's coming in the future. And I think all of this intergalactic stuff, Master of Kung Fu, but particularly the Immortals, indicates how they're going to start telling the story. That That will put Guardians and Thor at the forefront. That will put Captain Marvel at the forefront. This has a chance to become a kind of Battlestar Galactica, an, an intergalactic story right. going forward. You know, Chris Chris Ryan has long suspected that that was where the future of these stories was going to go. We'll see. I don't know. If it, if it means a great Silver Surfer movie, I'm excited about that. Me too. It does seem like bringing the Fantastic Four in can open up a lot of villain possibilities. You know, I agree with you that Galactus is the best and also most obvious choice for the next super supreme villain. But, you know, we could try to do Doom right. That would be cool. Cross my mind. They really scotched Doom on the last Fantastic Four. That was a really bad Doctor Doom. Um, There's also one other character who is Mephisto. Uh, Mephisto is Satan. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Marvel has Satan as a canonical figure. Uh, He's a slightly more of a trickster version of Satan than the real Satan, but I could see that being a thing. And, and Mephisto and Thanos and Death, this sort of the the female embodiment of Death, which is the figure that Thanos in the comics is in love with. And that oh. is why he does all the things that he does. Is It is an act of love. Oh, wow. It is not an act of um, political genocide. Again, uh, I would just like to note that Thanos' whole thing was, you know, it'll be a paradise. After we get rid of half the people, let the resources flourish, live off the land. Uh, Earth looked like a fucking dung heap. Yeah, he was wrong. <laughs> and you know he re, he he reconstitutes his vision to just kill everybody by the end of the movie, which I thought was maybe he should have started there. It would have made things a little bit easier. Nevertheless, um where Marvel goes, we'll see. They're going to make a lot of money. What about a Nihilus? You have a Fantastic Four and Captain Marvel connection there? No, I mean could that work? I don't know. There's some possibilities. It's really hard to do space stories though. Stick with time travel? Give us uh Kang the Conqueror? That that could work. Just do time loops every five minutes. Yeah. As, as we noted throughout this show, like time travel is a challenge. It's truly a challenge. Mel, any closing thoughts? Anything that you loved more than anything that you want to point out before we go away? Uh, I'm intrigued by the shot of Quill uh, on his ship near the end looking at his monitor and we see a picture of Gamora and the word searching dot 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 you know so she is not with them uh, and I, I assume that the pursuit to find her will be the big part of what comes next. I'm, I just really love spending time with the guardians. So I'm, I'm interested to see that. And I, I just am as all in on Thor as I possibly could be. And really, really hope that I don't have to wait until 2022 to see him do something cool in a movie or say families are tough to somebody again. You know, I just want that sooner. Um, I think that the, the only real mistake when we look back at this it won't be complex time travel. It won't be, you know, devoting 65% of the screen time to Black Widow and Hawkeye and War Machine. It will be Chris Evans shaving his beard. That's unforgivable. <laughs> That's my final thought. 
I can't imagine a better place to end this podcast. Chris Evans, please grow your beard back. Thank you for listening to The Big Picture. Thank you to Mallory. You are the greatest. <laughs>